as we finish our three-part little mini-series in the Ten Commandments. If you're just joining us, you're joining us in the middle of a, a small series we're doing in Deuteronomy on the Ten Commandments. We're, we're preaching all of Deuteronomy, but we slowed down for the ten words, and today is part three. And I want to start today by sharing a reflection I made about um, my relationship with Jesus. I've been following Jesus for over 30 years, and I've noticed something about Christ that I want to share with you today. It's interesting, this observation that I've made about Jesus, it's on, at this, on one hand, it's one of the things that I love the most about Jesus. It's also one of the things that makes me the most uncomfortable at times. And I wonder if you'll resonate with this. It goes like this. Jesus is absolutely fixated with my heart. I want you to think about that for a minute. He is incessant about it. What he's pursuing is my heart and your heart as well. And what I mean by this is Jesus is totally not interested in a veneer of you know, external spirituality, religious rule keeping. Jesus has no interest in just sort of like that outward expression, but it doesn't really reflect what's going on in my heart. The only thing that Jesus is interested in this morning when it comes to my life and your life, he's after your heart. When I was a student at Willamette, I was mentored by a spiritual leader who was one of the most wise leaders I've ever met. Her name was Julie. She worked with Young Life in Salem. And Julie had this uncanny ability of seeing past the veneer that people would put up. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, you sort of project something, but it's not really what's going on. And Julie could see through that. And it sometimes made me so uncomfortable because she would look at me with this gaze like she could see right into my soul. Have you ever known somebody like this? They're like looking into my soul and I'm not sure they're gonna like what they see in there. And then she would ask these really incisive probing questions. You know, she'd look at me and she'd go, Adam, how's your thought life right now? And I'd be like, <laughs> you know, I noticed you're a little high strung, you know. Uh, are you idolizing schoolwork right now? I mean, she just, she was totally not interested in external sort of superficial relationships. What she wanted is to go deep. She wanted something authentic. And really that's, that's what Jesus is all about. Let me put it like this. I want you to think about this with me for a minute. Jesus cannot have a relationship with the projected you. He can only have a relationship with the you, you. <laughs> You can only have a relationship with the actual you. And that's why Jesus said some of the things about the Ten Commandments that he said. You're like, what does this have to do with the Ten Commandments? Well, now I'm going to tell you. So I don't know if you know this. There was this pattern that Jesus would use in his teaching where he would say, you've heard it said, and then he would quote one of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever noticed this? He'd say something like, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder but I say to you, if you harbor anger towards your brother or sister, or if you call your brother or sister a fool, 
You're already liable to judgment. And he would just kind of push, push past the veneer and he would get to the heart of the matter. Or Jesus would say, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you think lustfully about that man or that woman, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart, right? And the point of that, Jesus was not trying to, he was not trying to go back and make the Old Testament even more legalistic, like, like burden people with a bunch of rules. No, what Jesus was doing was he was saying, you've missed the point. You've missed the point of the Ten Commandments altogether. You turned it into a religious veneer. You turned it into something where you just meet the bare, st- the bare minimum. Well, I haven't murdered anybody, so I'm doing pretty well, right? Most people could say that, and Jesus would say, well, it was never really about that anyway. It was always about your heart. That's what I actually care about. And so this morning we come to our third sermon, and here's what you're going to notice this morning. I'm going to talk a lot about Jesus today, all right? So if you don't like it when people talk about Jesus, you're not gonna like this sermon very much, okay? I'm gonna talk a lot about Jesus. I told Kathy this week when we were driving, I told her this whole series in the, in the, in the 10 Commandments has been one of the hardest sermon series for me to write and preach because I've wanted so much to keep moving into the New Testament to show the church how Jesus thought about the 10 Commandments. And that's what the whole sermon is about this morning. Are you ready for it? Are you sure you're ready for it? Because Jesus doesn't want a relationship with the projected you. Amen? Amen? Let's get the tryptophan out of the veins. Talk back to me, people. All right? He wants a relationship with the actual you. And that was what the Ten Commandments were about from the very beginning. So now will you look at it with me? I'm gonna read you the last five. Last Sunday we preached the first five of the the 10 words. You're gonna notice I'm not gonna call them the 10 commandments, I'm gonna call them the 10 words of the Decalogue because they weren't really commandments. They were words of wisdom. Here are the final five words of the Decalogue starting in verse 17 of Deuteronomy chapter five. It goes like this. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That's the second five of the Decalogue. You can recite the, the, five, the second five words, you can recite them in under 15 seconds, but there's 15 years of wisdom in those five little words. And I wanna talk about them a little bit, This, but I wanna talk about them from the heart of Jesus. So I've, I've arranged my sermon around three observations. I'm gonna put these on the screen so you can write them down because you're gonna wanna think about this week. In week one, I told you the purpose of the Decalogue was that Christians would meditate on it and find God's heart there. 
And so hopefully these three observations will help you. Here is my first observation. It goes like this. The Decalogue provides a window into the deepest values of Christ for community, for relationships. That's what it's actually about. You say Jesus has core values, he does. Jesus has core values about community, about relationships, our relationship with him and our relationship with one another. And the 10 words are like a window that gets opened up into the deepest values of Christ. I've been laboring over the last few weeks to show you that often the way Christians think about the 10 words, we've missed the point altogether. Remember when I said to you, there are as many portraits of God in the Decalogue as there are commandments. In other words, we make a mistake when we only go to the 10 commandments to find out what we're supposed to do or not do. That was never the point. The point was not to go there to figure out, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? The point of the Decalogue was to find out who God is and what he cares about. The 10 words embody the creator's design for human thriving. They're about what it's like to have healthy relationships as the people who are redeemed. It was never supposed to strap us with rules. It was supposed to free us up to live the redeemed life. And the way that they do it is not just through the words themselves, but the way they're structured. So I'm going to put up a slide that I've had up the last couple Sundays. Um, This is a way of arranging the 10 words. And I, I demonstrated last Sunday and the Sunday before that the first five of the words in the Decalogue are vertically oriented. They're about my relationship with God. And the second five, which we'll focus on today, are horizontally oriented. They're about my relationships with one another. And what we discover, even in that arrangement, we see something about the core values of Jesus. It's it's absolutely essential, if you're going to have healthy community, that you get your vertical orientation correct. Think about it. Those second five commandments, they, ab- they make absolutely no sense if you're not in a right relationship with God. You must have God as your starting point to even care about the sanctity of human life or the sanctity of marriage or the value of truthfulness. If we were living in an absolutely material universe where there was no God, none of those last five things would matter. There'd be no reason to care about the sanctity of life in a material universe. There'd be no such thing as truth if we were living in a universe that just happened to pop into existence by sheer accident. Truth, life, faithfulness, and covenant relationships, all of those things presuppose a loving, holy creator God who created things to work in a certain way. So we have the vertical. The vertical's got to come first and then the horizontal. And if we're not right with God in our vertical orientation, things are going to begin to break down in our horizontal orientation with one another. But not only that, and this is really interesting, the order that the words are given has significance. 
There is a scale of values reflected in the way the 10 words are ordered. I don't know if you've ever heard this taught, but I want you to just look at that list and notice they start with the most essential. Now, everything on the list is essential, but there's a scale. So clearly, God comes first. And see that? Yahweh is to be worshiped exclusively. You're not supposed to make any images. We are, the people of God should be loyal in the way we take up his name. God comes first. But then society is next. And the Sabbath principle, remember we learned the Sabbath principle is primarily about being loyal to God, but in the process, it brought this immense blessing to the society. Imagine, it was this very radical, there was no other ancient law code that required the entire nation to take a day of rest. This was completely unordinary, and it was a source of blessing for all people, not just the rich and powerful, but it, 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 it like dripped down into the lowest levels of society. Even the cattle were given a day off, all right? And it was this blessing to society. Next comes family, the fifth word, honor your mother and father. But then as you turn to the horizontal dimension, don't murder, now look at this, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't covet. There's an order of priorities there. See it? Life, the sanctity of life, commandment number six, matters more than stuff. Commandment number eight, stuff matters. We shouldn't steal, there's something to that. But that doesn't matter as much as human life does. Or that, 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 that last commandment, which is really about my desires, my desires matter, but they don't matter more than truth. My subjective personal desires are not more important than truth is. Number nine is more important than 10. My personal desires do not matter more than faithfulness in my marriage. And so you start to see this scale of values. For God, it goes God first, then society, then family, then life, then proper sexuality and covenant marriage, being faithful in your marriage, then stuff, and it goes down, right? Now, you're thinking, what's the point? <laughs> Here's the point. Imagine what would happen in a society if we turned that upside down, which is precisely what we've done in our society. We live in a culture where my personal subjective feelings are God and then my stuff. And if there is an actual creator God, he's all the way at the bottom of the list. Think what that does to society. Think what that does to relationships. Think what it does in a marriage when a man who's supposed to elevate the faithfulness in his marriage elevates the the, the acquisition of more and more stuff, and he cares about that at the expense of his relationships. Think about a society where people are so obsessed with their own personal desires that they elevate them above the well-being of others. And it begins to harm human thriving. 
So you begin to realize this list was not just some arbitrary rules. This is God's precious wisdom. Remember I told you the people of Israel absolutely loved God's law. They didn't view it as a burden. They viewed it as a blessing. And what would happen in a society where society-wide we get that upside down? This past week, a story made the headlines, and I want to talk about it for a minute. It was a very radical public conversion of an ex-Muslim woman who became an atheist, and then she converted to Christianity. I don't know if you've heard this story. I want to tell a bit of her story. Her name is Ayan Hirsi Ali. She is a former politician. She's a public intellectual, and she is an activist. And she converted to Christianity, and she wrote a piece in a, in, a, in a newspaper entitled, Why I Am Now a Christian. And I want to talk about, and if you, by the way, this is a fascinating read. I highly recommend you read her conversion story. She was raised in Somalia. She was radicalized um, in an, uh, by, through a form of radical Islam. And she, and then she was, she left Somalia and she left her Muslim faith and she became an atheist first. And, and, and in her life as an atheist, she read a famous speech written by a famous atheist named Bertrand Russell entitled, Why I'm Not a Christian. Have you ever heard of this? Why I'm Not a Christian. And she found a lot of solace in that speech. And basically what happened was as she lived out her public atheism, she started to realize that atheism did not make sense of the most important values that we covet in our world and in our society. And she started becoming uncomfortable with her atheism. She talks about how in in this piece, I'll just read a little bit of it. She talks about how many of the values and the ideals that we're fighting for right now, fighting to preserve globally, they are values and ideals that we have inherited from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Values like freedom, human dignity, safeguarding human life, even the freedom of speech. She realized these values, we we got these values from essentially the Judeo-Christian tradition. She said, so I've come to realize that Bertrand Russell and my atheist friends failed to see the wood for the trees. The wood is the civilization built on the Judeo-Christian tradition. It is the story of the West, warts and all. There are warts in our Judeo-Christian tradition. Russell's critique of those contradictions in Christian doctrine is serious, but it's also too narrow in scope. Listen to this. This is fascinating. She said, for instance, Bertrand Russell gave his lecture, Why I'm Not a Christian, in a room full of former or at least doubting Christians in a Christian country. Think about how unique that was nearly a century ago and how rare it is still in non-Western civilizations. 
Could a Muslim philosopher stand before any audience in a Muslim country then or now and deliver a lecture with the title, Why I Am Not a Muslim? In fact, that would never happen. And then she goes on to say, and not only that, if we were living in a culture that was the result of secularism or atheism, that culture would not create a culture where you were free to stand up and question secularism. And if you think secularism would create a culture that preserved freedom of speech, just look around at what's happening in the most progressive pockets of our culture. They're clamping down on freedom of speech. So what happened was Ion realized Christianity alone created a society where even within this society, we're free to question Christianity itself. And she realized Christianity must be the worldview that makes the sense of our world. And what happens in a society where we take God's values, the 10 words, this precious system of values that represents the heart of Christ, and we flip it, things begin to unravel. And they don't just unravel in there. They unravel in here. They unravel in my life. They unravel in my relationships. And my guess is you could say the same. Jesus gave us this precious list because he cares so deeply about our community. That's observation number one. Here is observation number two. I want you to think about this with me. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, they reveal how critical my affections are in order to really love and follow Jesus. It's not just an external thing, it's about my heart, it's about my desires. And the reason that that's revealed in the Decalogue is that 10th word, which I'm gonna have you look at now. The 10th commandment, if you wanna call it that, has nothing to do with external behavior. It encourages you to look inside and become more wise about the way desires work in your heart. Will you look at it with me? This is fascinating. Verse 21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house. Look at those words, desiring, coveting. These are, these are internal things. You shouldn't desire your neighbor's, your neighbor's house, the field, the servants, the donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Word 10, which is the last of the 10 words, is very different from the first nine because it's the only one that specifically addresses something internal. All the others address outward acts, but 10 is unique. It drops down into the world of my desires. Coveting is about not what you're going to do, but about what you want to do. And the reason that's so important is that it's the one commandment that addresses the things that are happening in my heart that no one even knows are going on. I break any of the other nine commandments and it's public, but with the 10 commandment, the 10th commandment, I can struggle with those things, but I can have a veneer up that no one knows about. I can covet my neighbor's donkey and no one knows that I want that man's donkey, right? <laughs> Okay, and maybe we need to bring that into the 21st century since we don't covet each other's donkeys as much, all right? So let me make it a little bit more personal. 
Have you ever thought, gosh, my car is a piece of junk? And man, Pastor Adam's forerunner is looking pretty good right now, right? I'm so tired of my kitchen and my neighbor's wife's, their, their kitchen is so nice, they just remodeled it. What I wouldn't give to have her kitchen. Oh, I'm so tired of the way we do vacation. Our neighbors are constantly going to Disneyland and Hawaii and we're lucky if we get to grandmother's house for Thanksgiving, right? Or to get really, really, like put my finger on the nerve. Man, my neighbor's wife is really beautiful. I wish my wife aged that well. Man, her husband is so kind to her in public. He's really great around the house. He doesn't sit around and watch ESPN. He actually fixes stuff, right? He's really great with the kids. You you could live with all of that going on and you could hide it from everyone except for one person who does not want a relationship with the projected you. It's really important for me to pause for just a minute and clarify something. The the 10th word is not prohibiting desires. Human desires, human longings are natural and good. Christianity has a very sophisticated theology of your desires. There's a lot of religions and worldviews that say all desires are wicked, you should eradicate them. But Christianity is very sophisticated. And what it teaches is that we're actually created to be creatures who desire things. The reason you have longings and cravings is because God made you that way. He covered your tongue with thousands of taste buds. And then he created barbecue chips. Because... He loves you, all right? He put the most perfectly designed lens in your eye. We'll never be able to create a lens that is as sophisticated as the one that's already in your eyeball. And then he made sunsets to be yellow and orange and sometimes purple. And if you really look for a moment, there's a flash of green. Have you ever seen that? And your eye can see it. And you take out your camera and you're like, oh, that looks terrible. I wish I just would have looked at that with this lens. God made sex to feel good. And then he covered your body with 45 miles of nerve endings. This is not a grumpy, stifled, terrible God. He's the God who loves us. He created a world with things to enjoy. So we need a really, really wise theology of our desires. And if we're gonna define coveting, we have to protect it from, from teaching that's not helpful. And the place to go is the book of James. Will you just actually keep your finger in Deuteronomy? This is one time where I'm gonna have you leave and go to James chapter four. I wanna read to you one of the most profound two verses. This might be the most important thing you hear today, so I need you to think really deeply with what James is saying here. 
In the, in the two verses I'm going to read, the word coveting and the word desire both show up, which means James was meditating on the 10th word when he wrote this. James 4, verses 1 and 2. Here's what he said. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire. There's the word desire. And you do not have, so you murder. You covet. There's that word covet. And you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now go back to verse one. I want you, I'm gonna just put verse one up, and here's what I want you to notice. This is so important. Notice. This is like a fundamental biblical principle. And if you've been around River West, you've heard me say this so many times, but I'm gonna say it again because there's a lot of new people. This is critical. It goes like this. In fact, I'll put it on the screen. If you wanna understand why something's not going well in your life, the first place you should look is inside your own heart. That's where I start. Something's broken. Something's dysfunctional. I've got a pattern in my relationships. It's human nature to go, well, the problem must be out there. But the gospel always says, the most wise thing I could do right now, something's off, something's not working in my life. The very first place I should look is right in here, which is really hard to do. You see what James says there? He says, what's, there was a problem happening. They were quarreling and fighting. That was his, the issue he was dealing with. For you, it could be just about anything. It could be people don't respect you at work. It could be uh, your spouse doesn't trust you for some reason. It could be that your children have turned on you for some reason. And James says, here's what you do first. Look inside. What's causing this? See what he says? What's causing that? Isn't it this? That your passions are at war within you? This is unbelievable. James is, oh, he's doing something here that's so profound. He's saying, don't you realize that in your heart at any given moment, there is a battle going on of desires. Your heart is like a fountain of all of these different desires and they're not all bad. Some of them are good, but what's happening is they're fighting each other. There's a battle of desires happening in your heart, and the desire that wins the battle is the desire that comes out on top, and that is the desire that begins to dictate what you do. Have you ever felt that? You get in a situation, and you feel like, I'm feeling a lot of emotions right now, a lot of desires. One of my very worst Black Friday experiences, all right? I'm gonna tell a Black Friday horror story because I know you'll relate. It happened on the Fred, at the Fred Meyer parking lot right over here on Highway 99. Don't ever go there. I think that's where Satan lives in the parking lot of the Fred Meyer on 99. But it was Black Friday and I woke up on that Black Friday and I was in such a good mood and I had a desire that day to follow Jesus 
and just be a, a non-materialistic person. And then my wife came in and she was like, it's Black Friday, let's go to Fred Meyer. And then I had another desire, which was I wanna make my wife happy. And those two desires now are competing with each other. So I'm like, let's, let's go to Fred Meyer. And then we get in the parking lot and, and it was like, I couldn't move, I couldn't park. People were backing into my Forerunner. Now I had another desire that came in, which is I wanted to roll the window up on my head multiple times, you know? And all those desires are fighting each other. And then, this is the horror story, I can't get out of the main parking area to pull into a parking spot because all these cars had stopped and everyone had stopped moving and there was a guy that was right next to my car and he had turned on his reverse lights and he was trying to back out and he kept backing up, backing up and he got like this close to my car and I couldn't move. And he gets out of the car he walks over. Have you ever seen the, the Instagrams with the guy pounding? The, this was that guy. But he, here's what he did. Kathy was sitting in the passenger seat and he started yelling and he went, he went like this. He went, and he spit. He hawked this. Yeah, sorry. It's uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. This is, no, this is actually a bad moment. This is where I almost lost my salvation as a pastor. He's... He spit right, if the window had been down, he would have spit in Kathy's face. And now I had another desire. (laughs) And by the grace of God, that desire did not win the battle for my heart, right? Have you ever had an experience like that? Where your heart is like a fountain of desires? Whatever desire wins the day, becomes the desire that dictates your behavior. And now you understand what coveting is. See, coveting is really just about disordered desires. One desire gets too strong and it starts to take over and it actually takes the place of other desires that are more godly. And it can happen in the direction of my neighbor I love my neighbor, but what happens when I start to desire things that my neighbor has? Now suddenly, my love for my neighbor is less important than my love for her things or her life or her marriage. And what's so profound is that the Bible actually cares about that. More importantly, coveting is really about disordered desires in my relationship with God. Because really when I'm coveting someone else's things, what I'm really saying is, God, I don't actually believe that you've been good to me because if you'd been good to me, you would have given me that stuff. And so it's the desire that takes over and actually, you realize coveting is really about my relationship with God. How much do I actually trust God? And so Jesus says, don't you realize how important it is for you to understand your affections? What's going on in there? So beautiful. Why would Jesus care about that? Because he wants to have a relationship with you, your heart, not just the veneer. Okay, one more, one more observation. This one won't take very long, but it's super important. Very important. Think about this for a minute. Jesus died on a cross 
to accomplish the one thing that the Decalogue cannot do, which is transform your heart. There's one thing that the Decalogue can't do. It can do a lot of amazing things. It can show me God's core values. It can show me the wisdom of God. But the one thing the Decalogue can't do is change me into a person who actually wants to love God and follow him. And this is absolutely critical. I hope by now I've convinced you that as Christians, we need a more sophisticated view of the Old Testament. We shouldn't look down on it. We should treasure it. It's a treasure. But I do need to remind you there's a reason why the Old Covenant was replaced with the New Covenant. There was something about that Old Covenant that could not, there was something it couldn't accomplish. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, they're a magnificent, they're an arresting portrait. They show us the character of God, who he is as our redeeming Lord, but they don't have the ability to give us the power to obey him. They can show me the standard, but they can't give me the kind of heart I need to reach it. And so I need something else. I need a savior who can actually change my heart. Amen? I mean, this is so important. Remember in week one, I was talking about how it's so fascinating when you read Deuteronomy, Moses, the whole book of Deuteronomy is a speech where Moses is pleading with the people at the boundary, please don't repeat the mistakes of your of your, of your parents. Be loyal to God. We're going into the promised land. Be loyal. And then he gets to the end of the book and he says, there will be all these blessings if you're loyal to God and there is all these curses if you're not loyal to God. And then as he gets near the end of the book, he says, and by the way, I already know you guys aren't gonna do any of this stuff that I've talked about. <laughs> I've been with you a long time. You're not gonna do any of this. You're going into exile. Remember when I said that? Moses understood, even as he was preaching to the people of Israel, he understood there's a fundamental problem with the human heart. And the law can't fix that heart. It can only reveal the problem. There's a fascinating metaphor that he uses. I'm gonna end here. I'm gonna read to you three verses from the book of Deuteronomy. I'm gonna show you the progression. I know this is sort of a lot, but this is really important. Moses diagnoses the human heart. Here is the first verse I want you to look at. This is the Shema. We're coming to this in two Sundays where he says, you shall love, this is Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. This is, from the very beginning, it was always about your heart. And for Jesus, all Jesus cares about is the condition of your heart. But then you read a little further, and we'll get there. Here's Deuteronomy 10. In verse 12, he repeats that. He says, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, love him, serve him? And then Moses says something really interesting. He says in verse 
15, yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose your offspring, offspring after them and above all peoples as you are to this day. And then verse 16, he said, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That is a very graphic image, okay? It's like, whoa, that's an attention grabber. There's a point. There's a reason for that. Notice what he's doing. He's taking a physical thing called circumcision and he's turning it into a spiritual metaphor to describe what needs to happen in a human heart. Moses is saying the cure for a stubborn heart is for it to be somehow cut. Something's wrong with the human heart. And initially he says, you need to do this. You, circumcise your heart. Then later in the book of Deuteronomy, now this is chapter 30. Just, I'm gonna read just two more verses. This is chapter 30, verse six. He changes and he says this. Actually, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Do you see, that's the Shema. He says, there's no way you'll be able to even obey the Shema until God changes your heart. This is something God has to do. There's something wrong with the human heart. It's cold, it's callous, it's broken. Sins ruined the world. Moses says, He's saying, be loyal to Yahweh, and the whole time he knows there's no way you can do this because your hearts are hardened. And then finally, and I'll end here, this is now the new covenant promise, Jeremiah 31. I'll put it up so you can see the, the language. So beautiful. Jeremiah 31 Starting in verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is Old Testament prophets saying, we need a new covenant. We need something new. The Decalogue is amazing. The Old Testament law is wise and beautiful, but the one thing it can't do is change human hearts. So I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That's that circumcision of the heart. That's God writing, cutting, tenderizing a human heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Moses knew this. A day is gonna come when God's gonna send a new prophet and that prophet is gonna die on a cross. He's gonna pay for human sin And then he's gonna pour out his Holy Spirit on his people and old, cold, hardened human hearts will be replaced with new hearts, soft hearts that love God, that want to obey God. And the reason I'm pausing on this is because what I said at the beginning, Jesus cannot have a relationship with the projected you. 
And I just have a feeling that in a crowd this size, that's resonated with some folks. And they're realizing my religion is an external thing. And I'm sitting here and I'm hearing this whole sermon and I'm realizing I need a new heart. My heart is so hard towards God right now. And it's alarming. Can I tell you something? Jesus loves you so much. You're not sitting here by accident. You're here because God wants to remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. That today would be the first day in an actual relationship with Jesus. Amen? And I'd love to pray about that right now as the worship team comes. So will you take a posture of prayer for a moment? Heavenly Father, before we go to the table, before we sing, before we have conversations in this space, before we drive away, before we move into the rest of our Sunday, I sense this extremely important opportunity to pause. and say, what is the condition of my heart right now? That's what you care about, Jesus. My prayer this morning, Lord, in this space, as your spirit moves among us, is that there would be many in this room who would begin to feel this softening towards you. They can't even explain it, Lord but a change, a new desire to enter into a relationship of trust in Christ. For many in this room, you've been following Jesus for years and this is just a, a precious reminder, but I know for some in this space, Lord, there are some who this sermon is for them right now in this moment. And so, Father, how we pray that you would move right now. Soften hearts. Save human hearts. Do that cutting that you describe. Remove an old stony heart and replace it with a heart that loves God and beats for God. And we pray it, Lord. And so we thank you, Lord, for the, the 10 words. We thank you for the wisdom of this passage. And we pray now for your blessing as we go to the table and we ask it together in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.